Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. everyone and welcome to the History of England at a Gallop, font of all virtue. This episode covers the same period as the detailed episodes 329 to 335. At a Gallop is designed for a couple of uses. You might want to take a faster, more summarised route through the period, or you might want to use it as a refresher or a framework to help you sort out the contents of the detailed episodes in your mind. If neither are what you want, then you just don't have to listen to this. You can skip ahead. You may have found episodes 329 to 335 just to your liking. But it's here if you want it. The world is your lobster. In this Attergallop episode, we are going to talk through some of the critical trends that appear in James's reign, which lay the groundwork for later conflict in the reign of his son. The growth of a public sphere of open political debate the failure to agree a lasting financial settlement for the Crown, and a growing split between court and country. And some other stuff too, but those are the big ones. Now then, James knew all about Parliament. He knew exactly how to handle them and get the results he wanted. He knew that because he'd had loads of them in Scotland, and he'd managed them all with enormous skill and got exactly what he wanted. So, it was to come as something of a shock to him that the English Parliament turned out to be frustratingly and irritatingly difficult to control, and that their turnout over the next 20 years of his reign to be, well, well, words escaped him, but could he go for arsey? There are a few reasons for this, the subject of today's episode, I suppose. The first and simplest one was procedural. The Scottish Parliament was unicameral, composed of three estates, Kirk, nobility and towns, who all sat together in one chamber. The Parliament was a lot smaller, so there were fewer people to manage than in England, and voting tended to follow very much the example of the few great magnates. So, lairds tended to follow the example set by their local magnates, although burgesses tended to go their own way. In addition, The Parliament didn't sit for very long, and only really considered bills that were put before them, and there was little debate, mainly voting. And the agenda of bills to be voted on was decided by a separate committee called the Lords of the Articles. This body was easily dominated by the King and his ministers. The English Parliament was much bigger than the Scottish one, so let's say there were about a hundred or so peers and clergy in the House of Lords, but there were close to 500 people in the Commons, and so it was much harder to manipulate. Since it was bicameral, two chambers, 
the influence of the lords and the clergy over debate and decisions in the Commons were much reduced. They were not nothing, don't get me wrong, there was still that personal level of influence. But the Commons had way more scope for independence. And anyway, the institutional power of regional lords was far lower in England anyway. Many of the jurisdictional rights that Scottish peers still enjoyed had long ago been replaced by central royal justice in England. The English Parliament sat for much longer. There was much more debate in it. It could propose whatever bills or matters for debate that it jolly well chose, which was particularly the sort of thing that irritated people like James and Charles. But that is not to say in any way that the English Parliament saw itself in opposition to the Crown, or indeed as an executive body. Absolutely not. It was an occasional constitutional body called by the King at his pleasure when he needed it. The Commons claimed the absolute power over public taxation outside of the King's personal feudal prerogative taxes, and it had an advisory role. Each MP had a responsibility to represent their communities and bring forward petitions and grievances for the King to consider in the interests of good governance. But as I say, it was in no way an executive body. This was not the government or where the government was controlled. The government, the people who got stuff done, they were the ministers and the Privy Council. They were appointed by the King, the whole King, and nothing but the King, so help him God. Parliament aimed and expected always to be one of the pillars of royal power and prestige, working in harmony with the King for the better health of the Commonwealth and the greater glory of his or her majesty. It was there to help. It enhanced royal power, did not limit it. As the great good King Howe of revered memory had said, the King was never so great as when in Parliament. Also, as will emerge over the next 20 years, actually, no one is quite sure where the line between royal and parliamentary power lay. So, as I have intimated in our last gallop, as far as James was concerned, the king's power was derived from God and no one else's. It was, you might say, absolute. So, yeah, it's good to talk and all, but don't tread on my shoes, blue suede or otherwise. So let's say that you did one of those exercises where you told everyone who disagreed with this and who said that the monarch was limited by rights of law and parliament and custom and that royal power came ultimately from the people, if you told them to leave and stand outside parliament, it would very probably be the case that way more than half the MPs would stay right where they are. It is very difficult to overemphasise in just how much reverence the monarch was held at the time. It's tricky to really feel that now. If the Commonwealth was a body, an image often used at the time, then the king was its head, and you can't do without a head, can you? Although many people try. That was rude. I'd like to formally withdraw that. Right, that then is a scene-setter to help put the next 20 years in context. Whiny parliaments are not, repeat, not, a gimme. They are not out to limit the power of the monarch. The problem, as always, will be about money, of which James was tragically short, and which I'll come to presently. And the person who's going to help James navigate the shoals of Parliament and sort all of that out is one Robert Cecil, the future Earl of Salisbury. Robert Cecil was the son of the ultra-famous William Cecil, and he'd come to power under good Queen Bess, 
and rather brutally, since he was five foot four and with a hunchback, she called him my pygmy. And Robert laughed. <laughs> James indeed would call him his beagle, though that might have been less the physical thing and more the rushing around on his part behalf, because what is clear is that Robert Cecil was almost as impressive a public servant as his dad, William Cecil, had been. He was an administrative genius. He was a workaholic. He was a tireless servant of the king. James recognised just how much he owned this workaholic servant. There is a rather touching story, well, touching, a touching story of, well, when Cecil fell ill. And there were worries that he might not pull through, he might not make it. So James came to his bedside, and that in itself was a remarkable honour, an extraordinary thing for a king to do, to go to the house of a private person. And James begged him with tears in his eyes to get better, please. And he really meant it, for as he said to him, if he should once fail, there were no more safe hunting for the King of England. I mean, it's a pretty self-centred way of putting it, but once you realise just how much James loved hunting, you might appreciate just how fervent were his feelings. Cecil reaped the benefits of James's appreciation. He was well rewarded and he was made the Earl of Salisbury, a title the family would retain and which a successor as PM will hold in the 1880s. He had such a celebration that the whole town of London stood there to look on so that it could be heard from the mountains of the morn. Big on status was your Jacobean. The idea was not to keep up with the Joneses, it was to make them eat your dust. So the biggest problem Salisbury had to solve in this parliament and the next was money, because it was a rich man's world. There are two angles to this. The first was that whereas in France their medieval parliaments had been quietly dropped, in England it survived still and there were few prerogative taxes for the king to exploit. So effectively the parliament held the purse strings. And the parliament was mean, with a capital M, and in fact with a capital M-E-A-N. A king was expected to live of their own, as it was called, which meant living off the income from crown lands and a few ancient feudal Jews. Unless there was some sort of crisis, like, I don't know, a crushing need to go and beat up the French, at which point the Parliament would pony up and strap on their spurs, ready for the fun. The refusal of the English nobility and gentry to accept the enormously increased cost of the early modern world transformed as it had been by the military revolution and military technology would be a critical factor in the crises of the 17th century. If it had not been for that narrow stretch of water and the fact that the French wrongly believed that our cheese was not worth eating would have been trampled all over and would speak better French. Our cheese, by the way, is of course excellent. The other part of the problem was that James was relentlessly and heroically profligate. Just could not keep it in his trousers. He just could not stop himself giving money away. Let us take the Earl of Northampton as an example, one of his chumps, on whom he showered money in the form of a lump sum of £6,000, an annual pension of £3,000, control of lucrative wardships which could have delivered crown income, and monopolies to sell certain goods. These last could have been the very worst of all these goodies. Traders and people hated monopolies. They pushed prices up, they stifled trade. 
Sometimes they could encourage innovation, but usually they crushed it. With these, and with other goodies, the Earl of Northampton died with £80,000 all in, about 10 million quid. Also in terms of profligacy, the households of the King, of Queen Anne, and even of the children were far from being small and neatly formed. Henry Stuart, James and Anne's heir, the next king in theory, had a household of 500 people. 500 people for a lad who was 12 in 1606. I mean, wow. So, given that the English Parliament was already suitably miffed by handouts to Scottish courtiers and extravagant expenditure that had taken the debt to half a million quid, Getting money out of them was not going to be easy. Parliament was already deeply suspicious that the king and his government were more than a little incontinent, and there seemed little point to vote any subsidies, especially at a time of peace, since the king would probably ensure it was all more comprehensively frittered than a slice of spam. Now it was this challenge that James's peerless servant Salisbury set out to tackle, to find a permanent solution to replace the current down the back of the sofa, go and beg Parliament for some handouts, strategy. Look, he said to himself in the mirror one morning, Parliament is mean and as tight as a gnat's backside. It is therefore my mission in life to endow the monarchy with a source of income that will make it secure whether Parliament pays up or not. So think of our Salisbury as a Jacobean version of Thomas Cromwell. It has to be said that it was not just Parliament at fault here. Elizabeth and William Cecil, of blessed memory, had resolutely failed to tackle the growing inefficiency of the old tax assessment system, not wanting to lose that good Queen best tag, and there had been decades of inflation to boot. The long and short, the broad and wide, is that the King's ordinary revenue of 357000 in 1600 was worth 40% less in real terms than it had been at the end of Henry VII's reign. OK, so Salisbury tackled this problem in a number of ways. Firstly, and bravely, he read the Riot Act to his king. He wrote a series of tracts with the burden of his message that may be sufficiently summarised in one, just one, of his lines. It is not possible for a king of England to be rich or safe but by frugality. There's something deliciously emotional and even childlike about James with all his extravagant affection for his favourites, his mania for hunting and his completely incontinent spending. Plus he was horrified to learn that this sweetie shop that was England had fewer jars of sweets in it than he'd imagined. And anyway, who would dare clip the wings of God's anointed? So he did take some persuading, but in the end he seems to have managed it when he sorrowfully wept with despair at Salisbury that the glorious sunshine of my entry here should be so overcast with dark clouds of irreparable misery. So he repented and then made himself feel better by some retail therapy and spending a deal of cash. Salisbury did everything he could to make his king solvent. He sweated the crown lands for higher income, but James had sold £682,000 worth of undervalued crown land by 1613, losing annual revenue of £27,000, so Salisbury was fighting an uphill battle. He and James introduced a new rank of baronet that could be bought. 
not a peer who sat in Parliament, but who had higher status than a knight. Jacobean England, as I have mentioned, was very status conscious, so that sold like warm buns for a while until the market was saturated with baronets. He did his best to sweat the customs dues by raising new impositions on a range of new goods and hiking the rates of those duties. Now, this led to a massive cause celebre, which went through the courts and got everyone aerated. You can hear about that and the financial fallout in episodes 331 and 332. Now, imposing new customs dues willy and indeed nilly ensured that the honeymoon between King and Parliament was over. The King was treading on the toes of parliamentary rights. Debate raged in Parliament. Petitions were sent to the King. In 1610, the French ambassador was with James when he received such a petition and noted that he received it with an angry face, said acidly that the petitions of grievances from the Commons was long enough to be his chamber tapestry. Parliament was getting so tiresome. Well, solutions, not problems. Salisbury sought a way around this with a bid to free the Crown from its dependence on Parliament. He called this plan his great contract. And actually, it was a pretty neat idea. Parliament would give up this business of voting a subsidy only when the King demanded it because it was at war. They would give instead an assured income every year from taxation in addition to the income from customs. And just now, they'd give a one-off extra subsidy to clear his debts and steady the ship of state. In return for all of that, the king would drop a whole tranche of out-of-date and irritating feudal dues, such as wardships or purveyance, which was the right to commandeer lodgings and food for his households as he passed. And right enough, things like this were really irritating and could be ruinous in certain cases. Now, this is actually very little talked about, but I would argue that this is a surprisingly critical point in English history. So sit up straight and listen. If the great contract passed, the independence of the English crown would have been massively enhanced. No more going cap in hand to Parliament all the time. The proper income to build a modern state and military. I would contend that it might have removed one of the major causes of the English Revolution, the constant friction of money and the power that that taxation gave Parliament to exact and force concessions from the king. Salisbury was a master manager, and many did indeed come round to his view and agree with this great contract, but a substantial faction did not. Among them was a man called Thomas Wentworth. This is noteworthy, one of the few names I do in At a Gallops, because Wentworth would become Charles I's greatest ally, the Earl of Strafford. But now he, and others like him, could not get past their outrage at James's flouting of their rights by imposing new customs dues, without parliamentary consent. They saw in that a creeping tyranny and a denial of their ancient rights. James, meanwhile, was furious at their objections. As far as he was concerned, this was none of Parliament's darned business. They should not even be discussing the King's rights. So he called Parliament to him and he carpeted them. He told them it was not lawful to dispute what a king may do, and that you must not set such laws as makes shadows of kings and dukes of Venice. Only papists and puritans were of that opinion. And further, that if a king 
be resolute to be a tyrant. All you can do will not hinder him. You may pray to God that he may be good, and thank God if he be. The response to this sort of thing from Parliament in the mouth of Thomas Wentworth was equally uncompromising. The difference between England and France was that by the law of England no imposition can be made without assent of Parliament. And while we're at it, don't tell us what we can and can't talk about, because there was an ancient and undoubted right of Parliament to debate freely all matters which do properly concern the subject. The Great Contract failed through this difference of view. James dissolved Parliament in 1610 and it would be another four years in desperation before, with debts rising around his ear, James tried again and called another Parliament. He was persuaded to do so by the rather lovely Francis Bacon, one of those genuine Renaissance folk that occasionally cross our path. Francis Bacon, as you may know, was both a natural philosopher and a statesman, credited as making a major early contribution towards the development of the scientific method. Bacon was also a dyed-in-the-wool believer in the harmony that should exist within England's constitution, a partnership between king, church and commons for the greater good of the Commonwealth. In 1607, the Midlands riots had erupted as villagers protested against the enclosure of common land and the conversion of arable land to pasture, which was taking away their livelihoods and their way of life. So they took matters into their own hands, they tore down fences and started to dig the land. And you can hear about Captain Pouch and the Midlands Rising of 1607 in episode 331. For Bacon, this enclosure was a betrayal of the social contract between gentry and villagers in pursuit of money and greed. He protested that treasure and monies in a state be not gathered into few hands. Money is like muck, not good except it be spread. He persuaded Parliament therefore to legislate against enclosure. Sadly even the English Parliament was powerless in the face of economic forces and landowner greed. Anyway, Bacon believed deeply in both ambition and public service and he became Attorney General and Lord Chancellor under James and it was he that in 1614 persuaded James that he must work in harmony with his Parliament, that MPs longed for consensus and to support the Crown. A theme is emerging here, by the way. The King was surrounded by some men like Bacon who sought to emphasise the critical importance of the ancient ways of King and Parliament working together and he was surrounded by hardliners who considered parliamentary concerns about the sanctity of law and rights of the people as represented in Parliament as just one step removed from rebellion. That Parliament must learn obedience or be ignored and sidelined. We'll hear that one a few times in the future. Anyway, Bacon persuaded James to hold another parliament in 1614 and that parliament really wanted to help him govern and solve his money problems and James explained that he'd been persuaded that my subjects did not hate me, which I know I did not deserve, which is a bit sad and tragic again. Anyway, the parliament was, in fact, so disastrous that it achieved nothing and passed no laws at all, and as a result became known as the Adult Parliament. Parliament noted that the King had ridden roughshod over their objections to his making new customs impositions without consent in previous Parliaments, 
James refused to back down and just asked for more cash, and it turns once more into an argument about royal rights, with one MP objecting that, if the king may impose by his absolute power, no man can be certain what he has, for it shall be subject to the king's pleasure. So James dissolved Parliament in a grump and would try to reign without it for seven years. Through the death of the great contract and parliamentary refu refusal to accept the legality of taxation without consent, a blow was struck against James's attempts at absolutism. The rest of his reign will be troubled by constant arguments about the respective rights of King and Parliament, and Parliament would continue to wield its sharpest sword, their King's financial dependence on them. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Money and the rights of Parliament were not the only problems James faced, though. Although he was a canny politician, he lacked that great talent of the most successful Tudors, the ability to project a glorious image of the crown as the defining apex and head of the nation in all its shining glory and majesty. Henry VII, Henry VIII, Elizabeth, they'd all been masters of the art. And part of that was that despite all the factions and reformations and disputes that we talked about in this podcast, all those monarchs kept a tight rein on the visible behaviour of their courtiers' public behaviour. They were kept rigorously in line according to the religious orthodoxy of the time, even despite the national struggle of the Reformation, and by the end of Elizabeth's time, orthodoxy meant Protestantism. The court was, in brief, supposed to be the fountainhead of all virtue, composed and made up of the brightest, the most shining members of society, who were considered an example of nobility and the best values to all. Yep, no, really, certainly, James thought that was the way of it. Here he is in his own words. This glistening worldly glory of kings is given them by God to teach them to press so to glister and shine before their people in all works of sanct sanctification and righteousness, that their persons are as bright lamps of godliness and virtue, may, going in and out before their people, give light in all their steps. Trouble is that James's court increasingly seemed to those outside it to be anything but, said virtuous font. James was surrounded by ministers deeply distrusted and disliked by the political nation, so much so they became known as the Three Knaves. They were the Earls of Suffolk, Northampton and Salisbury. Yes, I know Salisbury was a genius, but taxing people never makes them popular and he became enormously personally rich as well. So when he died, a libel appeared, which didn't seem very upset at his departure. The King's misuser, the Parliament's abuser, hath left his plotting and is now a rotting. He was also suspected of having an affair with Catherine Howard, who also happened to be the Earl of Suffolk's wife. 
Now, Catherine Howard was a card, and make no mistake. Hi to episode 329 to find out more about her. Beautiful and lively, entertaining, vivacious, charismatic, ambitious, political. She used the influence of her husband and of her <clears throat> friend, Salisbury, to gain an excellent position in Queen Anne's household, and it was obviously a bit of a hit there. She was also avaricious, unscrupulous, and ultimately corrupt. She used her position to create networks to wield power and influence along the corridors of power at court. Most historians actually conclude that Salisbury and Catherine Howard were probably not having an affair, but they were very much in a political partnership, that Howard helped Salisbury embed and maintain his political influence in the bear pit of court. And then there was religion. Now, by and large, James convinced everyone that he was a good Protestant, and no doubt he was. And James was very keen to maintain that view. But again, James was no persecutor, which is a good thing. No torrent of blood. Penalties to the few, he declared. On that line, the new oath of allegiance that James introduced has often been quoted as evidence of his much more relaxed attitude towards Catholics. So this oath of allegiance didn't talk about the king as governor of the church, which was a big sticking point for previous oaths for Catholics, since the governor of the church was, of course, the Pope. So this new wording by James probably meant the Catholics could take the oath to the king. Hooray! But hang on a minute. The oath also said that the Pope had no authority over the king or power to depose bad kings. Now, the Pope was absolutely livid about this in Rome. Of course he had the right to remove bad egg kings. Of course temporal lords were subservient to holy papal power. So Catholics were now in a bit of a quandary between a rock and a hard place. Did they take this apparent royal olive branch and take the oath? Or did they adhere to the strict letter of the Pope's law? Once more, Catholics wriggled on the thorn of a dilemma like a bee in a shrike's larder. Other interpretations, actually, while we're on it, have been applied to James's thinking with this oath. Maybe it was his intention not only to reconcile loyal Catholics by allowing them to take an oath, but also to flush out those whom he would consider as disloyal because they couldn't take the oath because they recognised a higher authority in the Pope. And so maybe the purpose of the oath was to divide Catholics. Interestingly, but the point to take away really is that James was not virulently opposed to Catholics per se. It was loyalty to the crown that he demanded. Apart from that, he would turn a blind eye. This is a consistent feature of royal attitudes to religion. For many others, the attitude was a good deal more uncompromising that you could not be a Catholic, which by definition required loyalty to an external foreign power, the Pope, you could not do that and yet be a loyal citizen. James's relative toleration for Catholics has an impact on his public persona because to the good folks outside court, James's advisers began to look a little suspect on the religious front. So one of the three knaves, the Earl of Northampton, was not only laden with goodies, as we've heard, but was also basically a Catholic. And to have the king advised by Catholics? Hmm, well, for most English, that was a bad thing. That was a bad thing in spades. 
The virulent anti-Catholicism of English and Scottish Protestants will be a major and recurring fault line in politics and culture. So it's probably good to explain it in a couple of lines here, although I do do more um, in the detailed episodes on that and how Protestants saw themselves. But firstly, the anti-Catholicism bit is theological on the one hand, and the word papism is often used for good reason, because it was not just that the Protestants believed Catholics had got it wrong with their beliefs, ceremonies, images, and all of that, none of which they complained were justified by Scripture. They believed that the poor Catholics had been duped into these erroneous beliefs by the Church. The purpose of said duping was the devil's aims, and the Pope was the devil's brother-in-arms, and the aim of the papal and devil together was to drag good people to hell. The Pope was, in fact, the anti-pope. This is not just a rude insult, oh, you anti-pope, you, but the actual anti-pope. It's very specific. There was a political angle to this, too. Protestants believed themselves to be part of an international movement of free Protestants with the freedom to commune directly with God and read his word. Foreign Catholic powers were seen as intrinsically tyrants to their own people by not allowing this freedom, and through Spain's aggression had proved Catholicism as a threat to their very existence and survival. So, the sight of Catholics like Northampton enjoying the run of court and the run of the king's ear was scary. Might he be plotting to overturn the Protestant state? As time went by, more and more evidence seemed to confirm this notion of a religiously pluralistic and corrupt court, not the font of all virtue at all. There was James's behaviour himself. Gone was the strict formality of the Tudor court. James was clubbable, chatty, informal with all his courtiers, and in particular he hung on the shoulder of his favourite, Robert Carr, openly resting his arm on his shoulder, kissing him full on the lips in greeting. Robert Carr had come with James from Scotland and had acquired a mentor called Thomas Overbury. Overbury had encouraged and supported the young Carr, and Carr was a good learner. Under his guidance, the beautiful young man attracted James's attention and began to win honours and favour. He was promoted to Viscount Rochester, and increasingly James came to rely on him. This is a common story of the rise of the favourite. James came to depend on him, and the king's confidence meant that courtiers had to beat a path to his door to get access to the king and get his ear. And so Carr began to control factions, control appointments, wield power. James, it has to be said, never really liked Carr's mentor, Overbury, because he saw him as a competitor for Carr's affections, and there would be trouble ahead because of that. But meanwhile, Carr revelled in his power, and he took up with another Howard, Francis Howard. The Francis Howard was the daughter of the Earl of Suffolk, as opposed to being her wife. But this was just as naughty, because Francis was already married to the Earl of Essex. And we have this quite extraordinary affair coming up, which unwinds in episodes 333 to 5, the Thomas Overbury Affair. In brief then, and do listen to the full story, it is a hoot. The ambitions of Carr and his lover, Francis Howard, escalates and escalates and grows and grows until they explode like a vast balloon inflated with blood and pus and soak the entire king and court in corruption. Carr's power 
could only grow after the death of Salisbury in 1612, and the lovers swore they would be together. And theirs was an open relationship, an open secret. The world speaks liberally of their love for each other, was the word on the streets. In 1613, there was an outrage. Frances Howard filed for an annulment of her marriage to the young Earl of Essex, and she filed on the grounds of his impotence. All of this was dragged publicly through the courts as she bid for the annulment. People loved this gossip. They wallowed in it like pigs in muck. Everyone heard Essex complain that Francis reviled him and miscalled him, terming him a coward and a beast. The annulment was granted, and Essex would be a cuckold for the rest of his life, all through the civil wars. In fact, there were regimental banners with insults about that. The story of corruption seemed confirmed when shortly afterwards, prize prize, Francis and Robert got married. And hey, the king seemed to think all was fine. Robert was made Earl of Somerset and promoted. The favourite had the kingdom at his feet. The rich and powerful beat a path to his door. The drama of his fall was therefore all the greater. So we have here a love quadrangle. James loves Somerset, Somerset loves Francis and Thomas Overbury. The king and Francis both hate Overbury as competition for the object of their affections. Bayek. The same year James tried to get rid of Overbury by sending him on a diplomatic mission overseas. Thomas Overbury thought about this and unbelievably refused to go. I mean, you just didn't do that in those days. An appointment to serve the king was not optional. So before you could say diplomatic immunity, Overbury's arse hit the inside of a prison cell in the tower. There he languished until 1615, when scandal, Overbury was found murdered in his cell, murdered by a poison delivered by an apothecary boy by giving him an enema. I mean, yuck. Well, the trial of Overbury's accused killers, who were supposed to be Weston and a woman called Anne Turner, they were all over the place in all the news. The courtrooms were packed, the news sheets, broadsheets, libels, ballads all went potty. Once upon a time, such a scandal would have been way less public, behind closed door, just, you know, the great and the good, away, away over there, just a local matter. But we are in a time now where a public sphere was growing. A public sphere meaning that information was widely available and open for public debate, and people did debate it and have opinions. And you can hear more about the growth of a public sphere and literacy in episode 334. News could now spread quickly within London. St Paul's Walk was becoming known as a notorious place where the better off walked and promenaded all day and shared and amplified gossip. From there, gossip made its way into news sheets and spread throughout the country. It's not just that literacy was growing and therefore people, more people could read it. I mean, probably literacy was 30% across England by this stage, but it was much higher in towns and among the merchant and gentry classes. But these news sheets could also be read out in pubs to those who could not read. And there were reports from the trial which were spread by private newsletters through a network of the gentry and into villages and market towns, carried by chapmen and traders. Essentially, the point is, ordinary people now knew much more of the goings-on of the great and the good. 
and the opinion of ordinary people began to be courted. Public opinion began to matter. So the trial of Weston and Turner unfolded and bit by bit, by one nugget of juicy evidence after another, the threads of the unravelling jumper led to the Earl of Somerset and his countess, Frances Howard. It seems Frances had been involved in witchcraft and she had obtained the poison that killed Overbury. Somerset was strongly suspected of encouraging the whole idea through his wife. Weston and Turner went to their deaths, but in 1616 at last the Somersets themselves came to trial in front of the highest court in the land, the House of Lords. Now, as you can imagine, the eyes of all England were turned on them, and they were convicted and sentenced to die. The ball was now in James's court. Would he confirm the death sentence and protect the good name and probity of the court? Or would the stench of favouritism and corruption extend to the king? Would he commute the sentences of his friends? Can you imagine the amount of breath-holding going on? Now, by this stage, James had rather moved on, emotionally speaking. Somerset had become unbearably arrogant, and it was irritating James. And Anyway, another nice young man was replacing Somerset in his affections, a young beauty called George Villiers. James's court, had he understood it, was on trial and awaiting sentence here. In terms of groceries, this case was just the tip of the iceberg. Besides this sin of blood, there are divers others, which are accessories thereunto, one libel wrote. Would the king, supposedly the font of all virtue, would the king cleanse his court? Well, no, actually. James comprehensively bottled it. Both of the Somersets were pardoned. Politically they were finished, but the evil was not scotched. The evil was not punished and expunged. Few now would hold up the royal court as the font of virtue, a shining example of moral and cultural excellence for the nation to follow and to trust in. It appeared to many that God had deserted the king and his court, leaving them rudderless. In 1612, many saw God's displeasure in the death of the kingdom's heir. Prince Henry had been the Protestant darling and a great hope. A martial, dashing, impeccably Protestant young man struck down in the prime of life. A rumour circulated that on his deathbed, Henry had cursed his father's court. Religion lay a-bleeding and no marvel when divers counsellors hear mass in the morning and then go to a court sermon, and so on to council, and then tell their wives what passes, and they carry it to their Jesuits and confessors. Well, by 1615 then, the honeymoon period was well and truly over. It's important not to overemphasise these things. We focus on the centre and London quite a lot, of course, in these things. It is worth remembering that for most people, the events and goings-on at court and parliament were vanishingly remote, but the growth of literacy, the growth of news channels, made them much less remote, much less. So news got around, and the apparent religious pluralism, the louche behaviour and corruption at James's court, worked hand in glove with the worries in Parliament that James was proving horribly inclined to deny his responsibilities to custom and law, and show a distinct leaning towards Catholicism and tyranny. This never takes over, as it does in Charles's reign, but it does have an impact. 
there begins to be a significant feeling that the king and the court, once the unchallenged leaders and head of the nation, no longer quite fit the bill. They were becoming tainted. The gentry of the country saw themselves as respectable upholders and lovers of the law and impeccably Protestant against this corrupt centre. The court and king no longer matched their national image. It was now to the law and to parliament that many in the country began to look for leadership. Where lay true reliability and prestige? If it came to a face-off, it was no longer entirely clear that people would automatically choose loyalty to their king over loyalty to their parliament. Well, next time we will see how a foreign catastrophe seemed to threaten the very survival of Protestantism and put the behaviour and allegiances of the king under the microscope. Where did his religious loyalties really lie? Could he and Parliament work together in the face of this threat? Before I leave then, let me remind you of the core episodes. Do keep listening to them. Can I also remind you that you can listen to all of my podcasts free of adverts and access over a hundred extra hours of podcasts called The Shedcasts by, coming a, by becoming a member at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Also, by being a member, you'll support my work and make me very happy, which is not everything, but it's not nothing. So that's thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Until next time then, thanks to all of you for listening. Good luck and have a great week. Mm -hmm.